and welcome. This is our first installment of what will probably be a quarterly practice of visiting with our President and Chief Executive Officer, Jeff Fiesel. Welcome, Jeff. Good morning, John. Well, what we wanted to do in this series of podcasts is kind of get inside your head because there are a lot of numbers in there, a lot of facts, and um, share some of that, share some of the appreciation that I know you feel towards our team members who do an amazing job, and kind of get inside your head also on the future. So if that sounds good, we'll jump right in. Sounds great. So for, for the first two quarters of this year, I know we've had a really, really intense um, effort to find out what pressure ulcers, uh, where they're occurring, how they're occurring, and how we take care of them. What, what, what can you tell me about that? Talk about jumping right in. As it. he smiles. Yeah. Let's just jump right into the pressure ulcers. Um, <clears throat> yeah, through our quality committee and our infection prevention team, um, we've identified a priority for uh, our team members this year, and it's pressure ulcers, you recall. In past years, we've had a lot of focus on caudies and, and collapses, catheter-associated urinary tract infections, as well as central line-associated bloodstream infections. And we've had performance improvement teams built around those things to address because none of us want a loved one to come in to the hospital and contract uh, either a urinary tract infection or a bloodstream infection, quite frankly, and it extends the stay. And uh, we, we can just, uh, we found that we can do a better job at it with some focus. And uh, so we, we have had initiatives around that. Our initiative, one of our priorities this year are the pressure ulcers. And um, I, I don't believe it's an area that we're not doing a good job of as far as patient care is concerned. Right. I think the, the issue is we need to do a better job of documenting what the patient has when they come to us and providing more structure around the evaluation uh, of the, the integrity of the skin. You know, we get a lot of patients from post-acute care facilities, nursing homes, rehab facilities, and many of our elderly are in their homes. They're sedentary. They're not uh, uh, moving around. So they're susceptible to pressure ulcers on their skin. And when they come to our hospital, we need to, first of all, uh, do a good job of evaluating their skin. And that's a lot when somebody that comes That is. It's here. a whole body. Yeah, when they come here for maybe congestive heart failure right. or con uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or, or, or to stop yeah. and uh, evaluate their backside and their entire body, their heels. Um, I mean, it goes from... Right, head to toe. Know, head to toe. And... Um, so it takes time, and uh, but we've committed to have uh, two nurses evaluate uh, That's the skin great. upon admission as a part of their, their evaluation process, and if they see anything, then to order a wound care consult, which presents another set of challenges to have our wound care team be accessible everywhere, meaning in Deltona, in Port Orange, here in Daytona, for every admission that, that may fall into that category. Obviously, we're not probably not going to do as thorough of an evaluation on a 40 or 50-year-old as right. we would a 70 or 80-year-old. Um, so, uh, but our wound care team, is we're, we're building that out. Um, and uh, Dr. Covington, Dr. Levine, and now Dr. Johnson right. uh, are on our team, along with their advanced practitioners, Joan and, 
and others there. So um, we we really have become the center for wound care in the area. I mean, yeah. I I think yeah. that, and because my father had diabetes, I get it the whole wound care thing, and it makes a huge difference in quality of life to have that specialty. And you're right, we're up to three physicians, and they're aggressive. They want to see everybody they can. I think that's great. Yeah, and two of them are general surgeons. Dr. Johnson uh, comes up, I believe, through emergency medicine. I think that's um, right. And then he went and did a, a hyperbaric oxygen right. fellowship. right in Louisiana with Dr. Harsh, one of the, who's like a world-renowned hyperbaric right. oxygen uh, expert. And uh, I've been encouraged by s some of the opportunities that he's uh, pointed out that our community may benefit from hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Right. Yeah, they seem very uh, intent on getting the word out about hyperbarics. And, uh, and you know, I think that it, it's seen some real successes in speeding up the healing process. So it's going to be good. Yeah, it's uh, obviously it's, it's great for wounds, and there's a lot of evidence to support that. Right. Uh, but there's some other areas that um, it can be used, and they're looking at how it can help with people who have had a heart attack. Wow. People that have had strokes to uh, basically introduce pressurized oxygen back into those areas yeah. to help you know, regenerate cells. I was having a conversation with him the other day about what neurologists and neurosurgeons think of it. And he's very insightful and has got uh, a lot of good thoughts on it. So I'm excited for That's great. the future. Of you know, the athletes use it, right? Yeah, I mean, athletes use it all the time. And so it would make sense that it just enhances your body's performance. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So, so one thing that I've noticed since I got here is we continue uh, to work on documenting because, and the reason this is important is there's two reasons. One, we don't want a loved one to have it happen. But two, we get dinged, so to speak, when we when our quality scores aren't where, um, where the powers that be think they should be. And so, so much of that, because of our patient population, I'm kind of asking a question at the same time, is that people are showing up at our emergency rooms with a lot of these different issues already in the works. And that's why documentation is so important. It is, and it's a, it's a necessary evil uh, when I say it that way. You know, none of us like to come to the emergency room and wait for a long time. But right. there's a lot involved in documenting uh, the history right. um, and the physical of a, a physical presence of a, a patient when they present themselves. They present themselves for a migraine and... And, uh, but yet we've got to make rule out a lot of other things. Right. And, um, but yes, it, uh, it's critical that we thoroughly document, uh, for all these areas that, um, we're being evaluated on, um, and pressure ulcers are one of those. And, but yet we, you know, we know we have a line of people waiting to be seen. Right. And, um. Yeah, there's only have, have so many providers, but documentation is 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 key because if it's if it's not documented, we didn't do it, and that's how right. all the insurance companies and the federal government look at things. And while we may know, well, sure, I did this. Uh, if it's not documented, then they're going to view it as if it didn't happen. Now, let me ask you this: as a lot of you probably know, we are going to be moving to the Epic system 
from Meditech, which is a huge undertaking for our organization. It's going to be probably a two and a half to three year undertaking. Will moving to Epic as the electronic medical record help us with documentation, do you think? It's kind of like a fresh start. It's an opportunity, yes. Um, first of all, computer systems are tools. They're, they're, they don't provide a solution in and of themselves. So I think one of the biggest challenges we have going into this is, is it going to present us with an, another opportunity to review our processes? Right. Um, it, it's not going to document for us. We're going to have to do that, and we're going to have to put appropriate um, processes in place and care paths. What it, what it does do that Meditech doesn't do is it allows you to access um, best clinical practice guidelines and care paths that other organizations have implemented into their processes in their hospitals. And many of the users of um, EPIC are organizations that are of similar size or larger than we are. Right. So um, if they have, the, have had the opportunity to put these things in place, then, you know, we can't say, well, that doesn't work for our organization because we're, you know, we're bigger than that. Right. Many of these organizations are as large or larger than we are. So it's going to present us with an opportunity uh, once again. But um, we do need to manage the expectations. Right. There's, there's it's not going to do our job. There's issues that we have out there. Uh, Epic's not going to solve them all. And uh, we need to be careful not to be falling into that trap and think, oh, once we flip the epic switch, we don't have to worry about that anymore. That's, uh, I think we'd set ourselves up for, for failure if we, if we take that approach. Well, you know, um, the best practices are evidence-based, and I think that's going to be a good thing. But I love what you just said, which is it kind of tears us down and has us look at our processes. And that is always a good idea, and I would guess – as a caregiver, you get so, um, so busy and so, I'll just use the word, overwhelmed sometimes that you have to work on the business instead of in the business, which is kind of exciting. And it's going to provide a lot of opportunities for um, many of our team members who are interested in informatics and, and all those things. So I think it, it's, a, it's a huge move for us, isn't it? It is a huge move. Um, and... I'm excited for our next generation of healthcare providers because they um, they do a much better job of adjusting and adapting to new technology. And some of uh, some of us that have been around a little longer become more resistant to change. And I'll put myself in that category. But it's something we need to to open up our minds to because when you have a new system like this, you cannot try to modify it to look like the old system. Right. If, you're, if you try to design your new system to meet your current practices, yeah. then why implement you're the behind. new system? You're already behind. Yeah, you, you're, you're wasting money. Right. So open up your mind, look at the way, look at the functionality of the new system and the, the bells and whistles and and be open to new approaches to how yeah. we deliver healthcare here in our community. That's why we're making the change to Epic because they've done a great job of making it easier for the providers, our nurses, our doctors, all of our allied health professionals, and they make it easier for the patient. Right. Which I think is a, a big 
thing for our community because um, I believe we did our community a tremendous favor and our providers by moving to Epic because now literally um, almost every hospital in Northeast Florida and East Central Florida are going to be Epic uh, hospitals. So uh, patients can seek care anywhere and have a accessible electronic health record for their providers to access no matter where they go. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, and it's really um, sweeping the industry like crazy. Now, you went out to the Epic headquarters, right? Yes, went and up to up the Epic. Is it? Verona, Wisconsin. Wisconsin, yeah, how yeah. weird, huh? Started yeah. in a garage. Yeah, Judith Faulkner, the, uh, Judy Faulkner, the owner, one of the owners. Uh, she's the principal that started the company out of a garage and actually had some help, as I understand it, from the CEO of Meditech. Because they started out as a practice management or a physician's office right. type computer system. And um, <clears throat> they installed that in their uh, in a lot of the academic medical centers. And it just grew from there out into the hospital environment. And now they are the most integrated, comprehensive electronic health record on the market. And quite frankly, 20 years ago, when you talk about the, the leaders, they weren't amongst the leaders in healthcare. Right. So they've really come about in the last 20 years, and they've done it by growing their own applications and making them integrated. They don't go out and buy other right. applications. They, they build their own. And they're a private company, which is really impressive. Owned by the employees. Yep. Owned yeah. by the employees. Very progressive. Take ownership. And uh, it's an interesting campus when you go there because it is a campus. And you'd think you're going to Universal Studios um, because they have different themes amongst their campus and different buildings. And everybody has their own office if they choose to have their own office. If they choose to work in an environment around their coworkers and peers, they can do that. So it's, it's really the philosophy that she's installed there is uh, very unique and yeah. unlike anything I've seen. Yeah, their website's impressive. Yeah, you, you know, you hear about these things in the technology industry. Um, and um, she's implemented some of those, but she's also implemented really sound principles within their company for accountability. Yeah. Yeah, I think they'll be good to work with. I know we have to hire a lot of IT professionals. but And so let, let's talk about that for a second. You brought up the satisfaction piece with um, the workers at Epic. So how do you feel? I know we're in a crunch. We've been in a crunch. I shared this number with folks the other day that at the peak of the pandemic, we had 180 patients positive with COVID in the hospital, a census of about 520. Today, we have a census of about 510, and we probably have six patients with COVID. So things are, you know, things are growing like crazy. I mean, we've had a census over 500 for quite a few weeks now. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's been interesting here the last couple of weeks, uh, really since Thanksgiving, when, um, you know, we had a little blip after Thanksgiving when right. people were getting together, and it calmed back down. And when I say a little blip, it, 14. it went from 5 or 6 to, <laughs> to 15, right, 14 right. or 15. So, yeah, it increased 100%, but the numbers are small. And yet our census <clears> is 500 plus. Yeah, and... Um, you know, what we have seen is uh, 
we're seeing some more RSV um, as well as the flu. We're seeing you know moderate uh, COVID, but yes, we're, you know we're seeing a lot of other comorbidities. Right. Uh, we're seeing the strokes. We're seeing the heart attacks. We're also our our providers, our orthopods, our vascular surgeons, our neurosurgeons, our acute care uh, team and trauma surgeons are doing a lot of surgeries, They're doing needed a lot. surgery. Yeah. As I review the surgery list on a day-to-day basis, I'm, I kind of shake my head because there's, there's a lot going on here, and a lot of it's high-acuity stuff. Right. And uh, there's also a lot going on in our cardiology arena. Right. And, uh, cardiac cats. Uh, electrophysiology, as well as implantable devices, and those procedures, surgical procedures, cardiology procedures, interventional radiology procedures, all the, the procedures, uh, surgical things, um, drive revenue. That's what drives us. And uh, But they're also, you know, high, uh, they're high acuity, um, they're technically uh, very difficult. And we, the providers that we have providing those those uh, procedures are second to none, and our community is very fortunate to have the caliber of of uh, physicians that we have here. We are extremely fortunate. I think about it all the time. We had an incident um, recently, and you know, Dr. Harmon, who's our head of intensivists, you know, having an intensivist program is not a given for a hospital and it differentiates us. And so that's how we provide the highest level of care, right? It is, it's, it's one of those examples, but yeah, Dr. Harmon has done a phenomenal job. Uh, Don Stoner um, <clears throat> was kind of the champion of that. He's originally found, if you will, Dr. Harmon. And Dr. Harmon came to us and we sat down with him and kind of created a vision for our hospitalist program much like we do with our open heart program or our vascular or neurosurgery program. But Dr. Harmon really um, clarified that vision and um, helped define what a best practice hospitals intensivist program looks like. And you're right, most hospitals don't have it. Uh, I would say 95% of hospitals don't have an intensivist program at all. And even fewer have intensivist in-house 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days out of the year. And that is unique. Who will take almost any transfer that's needed? Yeah. I mean, I had an incident with with a, a friend of mine, and, and um, of course, I called Dr. Harmon, and he said, you know, we'd be happy to take them if, if, if that's what the family wants to do. And, you know, that's, that's just refreshing. Because it, he certainly doesn't need any more patients. No, um, but he's built a great team of uh, intensivists around him, and and they are very accepting because they know that that level of care doesn't exist right. in other facilities, and um, they do do a great job of of uh, taking the patient, doing what's right for the patient, and then if there's issues aside from that, they. We'll sort those out later. And the interesting thing is, um, when, when you and I were looking at transfers, um, the uh, the transfers from Parish, mm-hmm. um, many of those were in need of an intensivist uh, because they must not have a program close to them. And so that's been a great relationship. And then the, the other one that's really interesting is um, 
the um, Advent Health in Flagler had a lot of transfers here for the intensivist program. So people are they're figuring it out that this is where you have to go for that highest level. Well, if the physicians are focused, the physicians at those facilities are focused on what's truly best for the patient, they're going to seek out the intensivist right. program here. Right. And get get people here as quickly as they can and not uh, dilly-dally around and say, well, we can take care of this. We don't need to, to transfer them out. And, you know, there's, there's cost and time associated with transferring someone out as well. But the sooner you can get, uh, get you know, a really sick patient here, uh, the sooner they can start to right. administer the right care path for them and get them back on their feet, hopefully. Absolutely. <clears throat> So we're going to try to keep this at a half hour. So there's, there's two things I wanted to kind of close with. One is um, your message to the troops, because it has been a trying time. We've had to deal with travelers, which we are thankful for, but at the same time, they kind of cloud the issue about what we really have going. Um, high census. Uh, a lot of work's been done in PBFS because of the different insurance areas and having to renegotiate those things. This is a huge, huge, huge opportunity um, that you have led the way on to make some big changes that are going to be better for us. Can you kind of comment in broad strokes on that and what you're thinking? Yeah, there has been a lot going on the last couple of years. and uh, I don't see that slowing down too much. That's quite good. Frankly. Yeah, that's good. So, uh, first of all, we all have to thank uh, each and every team member in, in the organization and, and those uh, partners in the community that, that help support what we do here in uh, taking care of our community. That is priority number one. It goes back to why we were created uh, 95 years ago. We were created to provide access and take care of the community. And we've got to stay focused on that. And uh, there's a lot of things that we do that go far and beyond just taking care of the community and providing fundamentals. But um, <clears throat> we need to continue to grow. You know, uh, We need to continue to be here, whether it's our trauma program, our thrombectomy-capable stroke program, and we need to be working towards becoming a comprehensive stroke program. We're doing, we have all the pieces and parts today. We just need to put the structure around them. Um, we need to continue to, to uh, provide comprehensive rehabilitative care uh, as we do uh, with our Halifax Health Brooks Center for Inpatient and Outpatient Rehabilitation. We need to continue to grow um, our ambulatory environments in primary care, uh, pediatric care, specialty care, uh, but also you know, keep our feet grounded here in our, uh, our hospital environments so that we can provide specialty care. You know, our partners with the University of Florida have helped us in providing specialty care. So it's, there's going to be more of the same. I, it's with our communities growing. Um, you know, I saw today where the number of people that move to Florida every day has gone down from a thousand people a day to eight hundred people <laughs> a day. But that's still a lot of people. That is. And I was looking at some statistics a couple weeks ago that, that suggested um, Volusia County grows by 10,000 people a year. Wow. And so, all, you know, after a while, that starts to add up. Yeah. And um, they're projecting that uh, we'll be uh, over, I think it was by 2030, we'll be well over 
600,000, maybe 650,000 people. Um, we're, you know, we hover around 550 today. So uh, those people need a place to go. They need health care. And a career in health care is, uh, is sustainable, and it's not going anywhere. <laughs> well, you, you bring up a good point, John. Not only should we look at them as patients, we should look at them as, as team members. Right. Because many of them are coming here from other parts of the country where they have been in health care. And, uh, you know, it's not unusual for us to get doctors that um, – want to move south because they're discouraged with what's going on in their own states and some of the and cold reimbursement levels and and yes winter is a great time to recruit <laughs> that's great well jeff thank you so much for joining us for this first um first installment of what i hope is many because i think you do a great job of getting around and you say hi to everybody and you help out with everything but you got 4300 team members and you're not going to be able to get to every single one uh, at cornerstone we do but I hope that this uh, podcast gives people an opportunity to um, just kind of understand what's, what's going inside your head because you have done a great job, in my opinion, of leading this organization and not becoming a, an extinct community health system, which could happen in some places. We will continue to grow, and I think it's great. So thanks. Thank you. You know, it's, it's important to get out. You've got to be visible. You have to be accessible. Our organization belongs to the people, and uh, it's important that uh, our community feels as though they can approach us with anything, good or bad. And uh, we also need to hear what's going on from our team members. And you, you got to get out and walk around. You got to, you got to manage by walking around, and seeing what's going on, and hearing the feedback that our team members have. And uh, um, I enjoy it. I enjoy meeting our team members. I enjoy learning more about what's going on and some of the challenges they're having and working with them to come up with solutions. So thank you for doing this. You betcha.